Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, where we share knowledge, philosophies, wisdom, and insight to help you on your journey in both sport and life. Introducing your host, Rob Riles. Hello, and welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast. Welcome along. It's Rob Riles welcoming you to another program. Now, in today's edition, I'm absolutely delighted to interview or chat to somebody that um, I wouldn't say I know well, but I feel like I do. I don't know whether anybody recognizes that kind of experience. You almost feel like you know somebody well, although you've only had the experience of um, speaking to them online and via Zoom. Although there's been, you know, I, I consider it to be a quite a strong relationship in terms of what we both believe. And I absolutely know you're going to get loads out of this. And uh, the lady that I've got with me who's given up her time to be here today is Catherine Llewellyn. Now, for those of you who don't know Catherine, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before we get into uh, her story and um, see if we can extract as much information from her wisdom as possible. Um, Catherine is a podcaster. Now, she has a podcast called Truth and Transcendence, and I absolutely love those two words, truth and transcendence, and I was immediately attracted to it when I saw it. Um, This is a personal thing, but I think she's the most professional podcaster I've ever come across, and I can say that because she she interviewed me a few weeks ago, and um, she blew me out of the water and made me feel very humble. So um, she's a podcaster. She knows all about the industry, and for those of you who are interested, and we'll mention it again before we go, she has a phenomenal diversity of guests and topics for you to dive into. Um, but Catherine, is a, she's a master humanistic psychologist. And one of her passions or her main passion, as far as I can see, is overturning accepted norms for human potential and promoting free thinking and self-actualization. She's passionate about helping people helping them transcend their limitations in all forms, whether that's physically, emotionally, financially, psychologically. Um, She spends an awful lot of her time um, helping people who have already achieved a lot in life, you know, whether they've achieved a a certain status in an industry, um, they're known as an influencer, and she helps them to bring out positive changes in not just in their own lives, but in their communities and their worlds. Um, she's worked with renowned organizations that if you uh, are in the UK, you will know HSBC, Lloyds Bank, Aviva, Scottish Widows, big multinational companies. And, um, you know, she's got this lifelong passion for transformation and helping people evolve. Uh, I know she's got an exciting program. I think it's called Yes, You Now. And um, Catherine will correct me if I'm wrong. Um where she promotes things like you are your greatest asset and only you can do this. So, Catherine, please correct me if any of that's not not true, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. Well, it's all absolutely accurate, although being the kind of person I am, every now and again, I completely rebrand myself. So when this episode comes out, I might still be Yes You Now, but I might be being space so being I'll, either space. Be, I'll either be yes you now or i'll be being space or i'll be stumbling around in the middle of the transition 
when this comes out. <laughs> so, <laughs> but this is it, this is actually part of how I am. I periodically stop and review where I am and go, hold on a minute, that part of what I'm doing has really grown a lot more than I expected and something else, it's ready to let it go. And then I just kind of regroup. So um, that's a long answer to the question of is that... No, no, letting go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big a big thing in, in people's lives, letting go. Um, I'd love to start, Catherine, with you for the listeners, um, just to dive into a little bit about your early life. Because um, I read that your passion... Uh, for this human ev- evolution and transcendence and and and, and the things that, that kind of um, call you came to you at an early age, five or six years of age, if, I, if I'm correct. So how did that happen? And what was your life like at that point when those kind of early callings about this kind of thing were, were coming to you? Uh, thank you. Um, of course, when I was five or six, I was completely, um, how can I put it? self-absorbed, you know, as in I, I didn't have a kind of broad context of um, the collective good and all that sort of thing. So obviously I wasn't like one of these, um, what you call them, prodigies, you know. However, um, I, had a, I had quite an unusual upbringing. And um, what had happened was my father came from a very, very blue collar family. I refer to it as dark blue collar family <laughs> you know they were steel workers in on the docks you know and he kind of um kind of ran away almost from that background he went and got a scholarship and did a very expensive degree in civil engineering which was unheard of in that community and they all thought he was a big head and needed to be brought down a peg and you know if you saw photographs of him with the rest of his family he looks different from the rest of them you know there was something about him Meanwhile, my mother was in a, an aristocratic family. Her parents were, you know, sir and lady, blah, blah, wow. grew up with servants and everything else. And she reached adulthood and went, I'm leaving this all behind. I'm going to Chelsea. I'm going to study as an artist, which was completely unheard of in her community. So the two of them were kind of renegades to their background. Mm-hmm. They met and fell in love. So immediately that sets an extraordinary context, you know, so... I was being introduced to people at all sides of the social levels. Um, a lot of very, and of course they knew a lot of very interesting people. It really extraordinary, strange people, people who ran communes, people who ran naturist communities, people who were doing um, non-violent communication, very early development of that work, um, artists. And all these people were kind of coming in and out of the house it was all a very kind of bohemian atmosphere, you know, and um, it was considered normal for the entire family to get dressed in the morning in the living room together. You know, everyone saw each other naked, you know. All these things to us were completely normal. And because, because my father retrained, um, started retraining round about when I was born, he was 40 at the time, as a naturopath and osteopath, which was a complete shift for him. Um, he immediately took us off... Uh, any kind of Western medicine. So I had one polio jab when I was two or something, and that was it. And the rest of us had none. No Western medicine, nothing. It was all go to bed on a fruit diet, um, symbiosis, the body heals itself. So all of this was terribly unusual. Mm-hmm. And alongside that, he was talking to us about philosophy and 
self-determination and everything else as soon as we could talk you know oh. and we're like yeah. we're like i'm five and he's what's your point you know it was a very very yeah. unusual uh situation so i i felt I was very much encouraged to think for myself to ask questions but also to be responsible for myself so wow. uh, you know looking back perhaps the being responsible for myself might have been a bit much for a five six-year-old but the you know and, and later on in life i found opportunities to kind of cut loose you know and, and and be a child sort of thing but all of the other stuff was very 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 helpful uh, but the other thing that went alongside it was um because of my mother's side of the family um for the first years uh, and um they sort of funded us going to private school so we were having this very bohemian atmosphere at home but then going to private school where we were encouraged to be conformist and as a girl i was encouraged to be trying to mold myself into the ideal wife so that i could find a good husband now that was a completely contrary philosophy to that which happened at e- home. even though you, were you encouraged to adopt that as a a good future at home or was that was that at home or at school that that was encouraged or both Purely. at school so at home, it doesn't sound like at home was different yes that's right it was there was a massive conflict between the two which at the time were incredibly difficult mm. um but now i feel it's actually informed me in the sense that i ha- i understand what it's like to be to feel uh, like a dual pressure almost and to have that be a very difficult experience for somebody i completely get that um but there's very valuable empathetic experience for you that way really, to relate mm. i would say so and and it challenged me to find my own path through were you um absolutely no this is I, i'm not conforming to this was that the internal dialogue that you were having or was it hard for you i would say that i kind of went back and forth so ah, there okay. was part of me that was like no and i was fiercely independent and bolshy and a bit of a tomboy and so on uh, difficult for for the teachers to deal with you know but then there was another part of me as i was um growing and and you know getting more as as children do starting to socialize more there was another part of me that was desperate to be accepted and and to feel a sense of belonging but the whole thing they were offering didn't feel right so it was kind of frustrating and confusing for me i had sort of conflicted emotions within me beautiful um very i'm sure a very unique we're all unique and we all have unique circumstances but that certainly i, I would say Catherine, doesn't fit into a uniform upbringing in terms of you know what might be a norm it's certainly on the end of the spectrum for from my humble small perspective it's a wonderful story um it's really interesting culturally as well about the fact that, you know, only a few years ago were, and I suppose it's not dead now, it's, you know, but it certainly changed that young ladies, females were, this is the way you're going, young lady. And, you know, that that was, and the stresses of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing that comes out for me is that you said your words were, it didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. and I think it's a hundred percent Catherine in my own life that everything that didn't feel right was the intuition was correct I can't ever think I've ever ever had an intuition or a feeling or a gut feeling whatever you want to call it that have 
hasn't been correct. And even if I've denied it and pushed it away and left it for a long time, it, it, it it's turned out in hindsight to have been, uh, if I can use the word right, the right way to go at, at the time. So I mean, I, I've had times where the where the intuition was strong, but I didn't necessarily know what to do with it or didn't necessarily mm. understand what it was referring to. So mm. it hasn't always been kind of plain sailing, very, very clear. Um, no, and especially, especially in situations where there isn't really anyone to talk to about it. I mean, um, certainly because I was a, a boarder at school and so I was just surrounded by these teachers who seemed a bit oblivious, didn't really seem to know what they were doing as far as I could tell. And these girls, it was a girls school who were, you know, by and large bitches as far as I could tell. And um, that really affected my my relationship with the female sex, actually, which I had to unravel later on. Because I thought, you know, women are scary and can't be trusted, <laughs> you know, the females. And I, I've come to understand that women are actually scary. But now I understand more about what that is. And I also recognise the degree to which that also exists in me as, as a woman, you know, so I own that as well. But as a child, um, I I probably could have done with someone to talk to a bit more. And in fact, my, my parents one time discovered me crying on a Sunday night before taking me back to, because I was a weekly boarder. And they said, why is she crying before going back to being a weekly boarder? You know, we thought she was having a lovely time, wasn't like a summer camp, you know, socialising with everybody. And no, I wasn't, not really. So they they pulled me out and I was then a day girl, you know. But, right. Uh, so e even though your dad, and maybe it was your mum, but your dad was um, open to new new or different ideas than, than conformity, um, what was your relationship with him? I'm asking it. What doesn't sound as if it was, but maybe it was. Was it one that where you could go to him and say, "Dad, I'm unhappy," um, or was it was it a little bit different than that? Even though he was quite seems from what you've said, Catherine, to be a really open kind of person. To you know, he wasn't stuck in his thought processes really. Well, no more than anybody. I mean, I think anyone can be, um, but um, he was someone I could go to. But I was also. Um, it was a blessing and a curse, you know, that I was a sort of fiercely independent little thing. Yeah. And so I would kind of hold on to it. And mm. and at that time when I burst into tears, it was when it sort of broke through because I valued being tough, you know, and being sort yes. of resilient. So it was that was more about me than him, you know. And, um, yeah, yeah. you know, no, he was very approachable in terms of being able to talk to him. Okay. It was yeah. just your, yeah. Your, it was you more about you and you're thinking well it's not right to cry and be a baby about this I need to just hold it in and deal with it and actually you know yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah I was trying to survive um but I think I'd oh, you know what it can be like actually and I've had this with clients where they discover that they're overly trying to survive to the point where yeah they're resilient they're getting the job done people can rely on them which is absolutely tremendous but that too much of their energy is going into surviving rather than enjoying life, you know. And so that's definitely an aspect um, in me, the over-surviving, you know. It's this kind of resilient. My parents were Scots as well, so I'm Scots by breeding. And the Scots are very tough and resilient. And it's a tremendous asset, but it's also a curse because it means sometimes you're just yeah. weathering things beyond what's healthy you know i understand it, that yeah. now of course at that age i think i was 10 and 7 yeah. of course i why would you how would you of course yeah 
Yeah, I love the Scots. I'm a passion. I've got. I love so much about the, the Scots. I think I'm one of the few English that that, that you know. Um, I like that, but um, yeah. yeah. So it, it's very interesting, and I, I I totally agree. Maybe every everything that's a blessing is also a curse. You know, it's like everything's got two sides to it, hasn't it? Um, yeah. Unfortunately, um, every now and again, I think surely I've reached the point where you know it it doesn't have a shadow side to it. Oh no, yes, it does. Yeah. There was a hilarious um, post on Facebook the other day. Um, I don't know if you are on Facebook where someone had people put up memes, you know, images with words. Mm. And someone had put up um, one of these memes that goes, me, like a conversation, me. I think I've really evolved now and reached a fantastic place, you know, where I can sort of relax. Then next it goes, the universe, no. <laughs> it that, that could almost sum up life, couldn't it? Yeah. Every time you, you think, oh, I've done all right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great one. Yeah. Um, your story reminds me, um, I was reading this last couple of weeks about Florence Nightingale, and I didn't realise what a story and, and an absolute warrior, you know. Obviously, she's this infamous woman who is, you know, said, you know, to be mainly responsible for so much of the of, of the nursing profession. Um, and it and its evolution. Her story, the little bit that I read was, you know, wonderful. That she, um, I don't know if you know, but she was from a, an aristocratic background and was expected to do this. And, and she held in Catherine. She fought with herself for for years and years and years. And I can't remember how many before she actually answered the call to, to just leave and go to the the worst place where men were dying on the battlefield in droves and she kind of just walked out mm. um but her calling was like years and years and years and she she had to deal with that internally and and was trying to be forced into this you know you need to find a husband and you need to you know we need to or all the things that that, that kind of you have alluded to um yeah very very parallel um well sure that shit you're not alone Earlier on, I suppose her. I can't. I can't remember exactly when she was around, but I imagine it was much worse then. Much worse, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so, because I want to move this on and, and and talk about your truth and transcendence, but I'm, I'd like to weave the story of how you got to, you know, because obviously where you are now and and the things you're doing now, which I really want to talk about how. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of worked your way through getting to that, to where you are now, in terms of, your, you know, maybe the education or that your, your work and things like that. Yes. So it's really interesting because it was definitely a path that could not have been foreseen. So it wasn't a direct, first you do this and then you do that mm. and then you're up there. Um, I pretty much tended to just follow um, what felt like the right thing to do next without necessarily having any idea where it was going to go. Um, all my life, actually. Um, so because my father was a, a practitioner, um, the idea of being someone who helps people um, in a natural way really struck me. And it um, at one time, he and I were talking about him kind of training me up and then me studying and picking up with that profession. Um, but that didn't happen probably primarily because when I hit my teenage years, I rebelled and wanted to find myself and do right. my own thing, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean do your own thing? What does that mean? You know, and <laughs> so so I kind of flew off 
So that wasn't going to happen, really. So I um, went off and I was fascinated to understand more about the human condition and how to be happy and how to relate well and all of that stuff. Um, and I got in in with a bunch of reprobates um, and we were experimenting with recreational drugs. And a particular one that was part of the path really was LSD, because that was the one where we were really exploring. And we were doing it kind of for a spiritual purpose, you know, finding truth for ourselves and yeah. cracking open the preset way of perceiving life and, and so on. Mm. Um, and that was very enlightening for me and interesting. Uh, and then later on, you know, I reached a point where I was, I should have been working already years before. I hadn't done a degree. I actually did the first year of a degree and then dropped out because I thought it was a waste of time. And I was just hanging out and partying and, and doing stuff for years, several years, two, three years. And then someone, I said, I've got to start working. Otherwise, I'm going to be unemployable. So someone said, well, what did you like doing at school? And I said, well, maths. They said, great, we're going to computers then. I went, all right then. <laughs> so I went and found what was called the computer users yearbook and wrote like 300 different companies that would train you from scratch right. I wrote to all of them I got I think three or four interviews and I got a job and they trained me as a programmer and a programmer and so I went and did that for a few years so this was in the uh what eight 80s or something or what I was um 90s 80s, I don't know. 70s Late 70s. In the 70s. Okay. So computers are really new. They're totally new, yeah. 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 There were no PCs. It was all terminals. Yeah. And it was all, um, you know, those punch cards. Yes. Um, and if everyone was on their terminals at the same time, everyone's terminal would run at half speed. You know, it was very, very early days. I was the only girl in the group. The others were all men. Mm. Um, and I did that for a while. And then I um, bumped into some friends in Oxford who who'd gone off for a week and they were completely different from how they'd been last time I'd seen them. They were really energized and right. transformed and enlightened. Yes. And, I only saw you last week. What the hell's happened? They said, well, we've done this weekend, this, this transformational enlightenment weekend. Right. So I spent three months arguing with them and saying, I can do that enlightenment thing by myself. And they went, all right, then do it. And three months later, I thought, well, listen, I can't do this on my own. So I snuck off secretly and did this weekend. And it, and it was one of these, in it was a bit like Est. It was a thing called Exegesis. It's a bit like a thing now called Landmark Forum. It was a bit like that. But okay. much rough around the edges. Very intense. Yeah. You know, people standing on platforms and screaming. and People throwing up and people looking into their psyche and their beliefs. And really very intense. Very, yeah. very long days. Anyway, that really gave me a very strong... Um, that's the first time I'd met other people other than my family were really into trying to find the truth, mm. be the best they can be. And it wasn't long before I um, left my computers and went and started working with some of these people I'd met through this. Wow. Okay. And we started a telephone marketing company because somebody had heard that if you're really good on the phone, you can sell Make yourself. Lots of money, yeah. And at the time, it was all telephone sales with a very bad reputation. You know, mm. people calling you at home at 10 o'clock at night trying to sell you double glazing and insurance. So we started doing business to business. We were one of the very first business to business thing people. Right. No idea what we were doing, but we were fantastic on the phone. Great. Because we were really present and really connected with people. And people would come off the phone feeling, wow, someone's really paid attention to me. They really listened to me. And 
oh, it was someone trying to set an appointment to come and sell us computers. What, you know? And then clients started saying, why are your people getting such great results on the phone better than our people? Will you train our people? And then they said, well, you've trained our people, but now we can't control them because they're really authentic and stuff. Will you train our team leaders? Now our team leaders can't be good. Will you train the supervisors? It's right, that double-edged you... sword again, isn't it? Yeah. Will you train? And it just went on and on until we were tra- until I was working with board level execs, helping them do change leadership. So it it started with that enlightenment program, and then developed, which I did in 1979, I think. And then within a couple of years, I was starting this company with these other people, which then grew to a point where we sold it, and it and I got you know a lump sum for that. Uh, but I'd actually left the business before that. So I was with that organization for 16 years. Wow. By, at the end of it, I was kind of um, at the top level of the organization. And um, just before I left, we did a deal with Surrey University. And Surrey University um, were running a master's degree called Change Agent Skills and Strategies, which was basically a humanistic master's right. for people that, that do one-to-one counselling work, um, group facilitation and organisational change, but from a humanistic perspective. Mm. And this was started by a chap called John Heron, who's one of the fathers of humanistic psychology. And who right. I, by then I'd met him. He'd had me do a review of one of his books. Um, you know, he, was, he, he became a strong teacher of mine. And our organisation did a deal with Surrey to run their master's degree on site at our organisation for a group of our people. So I did that, and that gave me a whole bunch of um, uh, labels for things I'd already been doing intuitively, plus a kind of theoretical context for my approach, because my approach had always been very humanistic, or for a long time, that it had naturally been humanistic. So I then came out of that with a whole bunch of new material, and during that process, I left and set up on my own. So that was 1996 that I set up on my own, um, and I actually... I'd met a lot of board level execs through my work in the organization. So I just rang them all up and said, I'm out. Um, I can now make it up as I go along. Do you want to have a chat? And they went, fantastic. You know, so I could then um, start working with them. And our organization that I left wasn't well organized to get me to sign a, an agreement not, not to work yeah, with Not clients. to go and work with them. Yeah. But I didn't steal clients because what I was offering was completely different from what the organization offered. You know, it's very individual, one-to-one or one-to-group. Um, I wasn't doing the... Because we used to do these kind of um, big programs with a big team going in. And after but I you left, didn't do that. You no, did no, the one-to-one. One-to-one. And also group facilitation, but on my own. I, it was, Which is a very different way of working where you're going in with a big team that's working with all of the management in groups all the way down. You know, I was just working with the top people and teaching them stuff that they could do down line. Instead and, of- and, you, and you did this, Catherine, with, without a formal education in, you know, psychology. You did this from, from experiential learning, if I'm, unless I've missed something. Is that correct? Yeah, it's experiential, like 60, well, when did I start doing the group work? Probably 1980. So 16 years experiential learning. And then the master's um, really boosted that. Because it gave me new training and information. Was your was this master's in humanistic psychology? Well, it was called Change Agent Skills and Strategies. Yes, but it was really in humanistic psychology. So, just for 
for, for the benefit of me and for people who are listening, um, help help me to understand very simply what humanistic psychology is, in so that it, we know what it's the difference between that and another type of psychology or just psychology as a basic label. Okay, so psychology is the total broad understanding of how the mind works. Yeah. So. Um, humanistic psychology really first evolved as an antidote to an overemphasis on psychoanalysis. So in psychoanalysis, the idea is that you go back, as I understand it, because I'm not trained in psychoanalysis. So um, as I understand it, in psychoanalysis, you go back and you do a massive amount of casework on your early life and trying to find influences from parental experiences, early traumas, et cetera, et cetera. And you can spend years on that like a Freudian approach. Freudian approach. He was the most well-known psychoanalyst. And what happened was um, there came a point where some people who had actually trained in, in Freudian and Jungian, I mean, Jung was a bit different. Jungian. Yeah. Still, um, he moved more into the sort of archetypal work of looking at what are the different aspects of the self today, yeah. you mm. know, which is moving on from Freud. And apparently yes. the two of them well and used to argue, right? But... Um, then there was this idea of, yes, but that approach is fantastic, but d not everybody needs that. Mm. Not everybody is that. It's not the best thing for everybody because <clears throat> the thing is that can also turn up a lot of problems that you don't necessarily need to go into. Um, so the humanistic approach was much more, let, let us start from the present rather than starting from the past. So you start from the present with yes. what we call... Um, presenting material and presenting material in the present can be positive negative in between confused it can be anything mm. you literally start from there so if a client comes in saying i'm just so happy at the moment my life is so great you start from there you don't yeah. say ah oh, but what are you denying you know you're you're, okay. you're yourself you know you start by saying that's superb great so where would you like to go with that? You know, would you like to understand more fully how okay. you did that? Would you like to understand what's great now? Would you like to see what you want to build on? Would you like want to see what you want to contribute more, etc.? So you start from there with an assumption that that person has the, the authority and the capacity to know what they want and to know how to get there, possibly with some help, okay? They might want some help clarifying what they want. They might want some help clarifying how to get it. But it's not the practitioner's job to impose that upon them. You know, it's a, it's a highly respectful approach. And it, it's assuming that we all have the potential to be self-directing in that regard. Mm. And that we all have the potential to be, to have a positive intent, you know. And that if you don't actively suppress somebody's natural desire to grow, they yeah. will naturally, naturally tend to grow. Okay. And if someone isn't naturally tending to grow... It, the assumption is not because they don't want to grow and have to be, you know, manipulated and and forced to want to grow. It's because their natural desire and tendency to grow is being in some way blocked by something, which may be something internally to them or something external or combination. So you're working with that person to help unblock it rather than um, battling with that person against yeah. them. You're working with them. So it's a very cooperative uh, working relationship. And... Also in humanistic psychology, the quality of the relationship between the practitioner and the client is 
possibly the most important part of the work. Mm. So there's a strong emphasis on the, the client choosing the person they want to work with and never having someone imposed upon them. You know, so if okay. I have, if I, I have, I've had several people who've sort of worked with me and then um, encouraged other people to work with me, or you know, a chairman asks someone on the board. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I've always yeah. said you cannot tell them to work with me. You cannot even tell them to meet with me. You can invite them to do it. And when I meet with them, I'm going to find out if they want to work with me or not. And if they don't, I'm not going to work with them. Are you struggling to find that extra edge to help you stand out above the crowd? Separating yourself from the rest is often about personal leadership. Achieve your true potential and become who you really can be. The Leader Manager Coach Pro Course is a unique membership accessing the knowledge and wisdom from history's greats that will help you develop both personally and professionally to make you truly stand out. The Leader Manager Coach Pro Course. Access now at patreon.com Leader Manager Coach. It's very enlightening. I, I have to say, I'm. I, I was. I was educated to it, not a degree level in psychology and Freud and and, and Jung. And, and I've, in later life, more recently, I've, Jung fascinates me. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm a very lay person. I just like to find out things. I think Jung is an absolute genius. I'm not saying Freud isn't. Um, and you know, these archetypal things that I, I don't think they can be denied. You can't deny thousands of years of somehow human history that gets passed on and passed on and passed on through genetics. Um, but yeah. like you say, um, I've also experienced personally and listening to other people, the stress and the trauma of uh, spending too much time in the past. Um, so look, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not here to judge um, but it's really interesting, and thank you for for sharing that. And I'm, you know, um, what I like about that is the relationship thing that 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 you talk about. Um, yeah. In in my own life, as much as it's still, you know, I think like how how, how many years does it take you to learn this? That um, a lot of my times, because I was trained as a physiotherapist, it's all about the physical body, the the, the physical body, and all I do now is do relationship work really and and the the advice or the the exercises or the manipulation or whatever it is it's like five percent of the time i spend with people catherine the rest is them skipping out saying oh i feel better you know um and and so i concur totally if that if that resonates with with kind of what you're saying about absolutely right it's a it's a it's a massive part of the whole thing yeah i mean so here you are um, with set up on your own um, with the kind of this great big body of experience behind you and, and, and obviously got people who know you and respect you and, and, and think, wow, yeah, you know, like, yeah, let's work. And so that's what you did. And, and um, what's kind of the next chapter in, in that that leads you to, you know, does that is there another step before you kind of went to truth and transcendence as, as part of your brand or? Is there a couple of steps or so? Where did, where did we go next, Catherine? So um, I, I set up on my own in 1996. So that's, yeah. you know, is that 20, 26? Yeah. So a few things have happened since then. Um, so one one thing that happened um, at about the same time as I set up on my own was I came across Reiki. Ah, okay. And I also came across a thing called Five Rhythms Dance. 
So I, I was very interested in Reiki because through my relationship with my father, I was interested in healing, natural healing. And so I also uh, took the Reiki practitioner training and then later on the Reiki master training. And that was running alongside. So quite a few of my corporate clients um, are now also Reiki practitioners. <laughs> they decided alongside the work, they just fancied having the initiations and the training in Reiki as well. Why not? Um, so there's people in the city in suits who are actually Reiki practitioners. They don't look like it, um, which was great. And and um, Five Rhythms Dance uh, was a thing developed by a woman called Gabrielle Roth in California right. in the 1960s and 70s. And um, it comes under an umbrella of what some people call ecstatic dance and some people call it conscious dance and some people call it movement meditation. So it's essentially you are um, just allowing your body to move as it wants to move in such a way that you become more self-aware as a result and you also allow the energy to move more freely and you allow your expression to come through and for a lot of people some of the time when they do it they also process stuff that's locked in the body which is very liberating and health health forming um so i came across that in 1996 through one of the tutors on the masters okay who was into it so it's another example of one thing leading to another. Yes, yeah. Now, one thing led to another, and I did the five rhythms teacher training in 20, 2009 to 10. Oh. I did also holding five rhythms um, groups. And then a few years back, I let go of the five rhythms brand and carried on doing the movement work, but under my own, um, my own approach, slightly less structured approach, which a lot of five rhythms teachers do that. They kind of, it's a very good basic training. Mm. A lot of people then evolve from mm. that. So I'm now doing, um, oh, and then also in 2018, I then came across another he healing modality called Pelowa, because a very, P-E-L-L-O-W-A, Pelowa, because of a, a really good friend of mine who had also trained as a Reiki master with the same teacher, um, who had also married one of my friends who was on the masters with me, who I used to do that training with, um, <laughs> all links together. She disappeared for 15 years back to Australia. She's Australian. She came back in 2018. We met for lunch and I said, with the three of us, and I said, what have you been doing for 15 years? And she said, I've been doing Pelowa. And she said, what's, I said, what's that? And I could feel my other friend. And I thought, she's set this conversation up. She's made this happen because she's wily like that. Anyway, and she said, Pelowa means radical shift in consciousness. It's an energy right. technique for a radical shift in consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I went, I instantly said, I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And so in 10 days time, the three of us were in her converted chapel that she was renting, doing the workshop. She was teaching us Pelowa and attuning us as practitioners. And um, so that was then another string to my bow and then last year, I did the Pelowa teacher training. So I'm now running Pelowa workshops for people who want to experience a very profound shift in consciousness. And I also give Pelowa treatments for people who want that. I'm not doing much Reiki now. Every now and again, someone contacts me and says, will you do a master's program with me? I'm doing mentoring with whoever is ready for that. I'm running... Um, mentoring in real with relationship to Reiki, Pelowa, or just mentoring with your... Humanistic psychology. 
so what what tends to happen is if someone comes towards me to, to work with me, they'll usually start with one of the modalities. So either it'll be humanistic psychology right. mentoring, or they might come and do conscious movement work in, in a group with me, um, or they might come and have treatments or come and do the Pelower workshop. For example, so they'll usually be drawn to one of those things, okay. but then okay. some of those people move on and then do um, what I call the advanced bespoke program, where they do a program where everything is all woven in together. Okay. Which is not very many people are ready for that, as you can imagine, because the different things appeal to different people. Right. So this is brilliant. This is beautiful and it's brilliant. And this really ha- gone exactly where I wanted it to, or I couldn't. Uh, and um, <laughs> so what I'd like to ask you, and, and I'm going to probably, so again, for the listeners and for me, if you can, Catherine, give us a, like a thumbnail of Pellowa, a thumbnail and a thumbnail of Reiki. So, and then the third question, maybe I shouldn't ask you three questions without, without giving you a break, is saying, do people come to you with any question that they can imagine, like, I need help with X? and somebody told me you can help, or do they come to you primarily with a health issue, or do they come to you with a, a relationship issue, or what you might brand or call a mental health uh, issue? I'm sorry to be so kind of pigeonholy with those kind of things. But, no, no, it's a great so question. Thank you. If, I feel, yeah. How do those, how does, so go and try and dig your way through that horrible set of questions. Honestly, that's nowhere near as convoluted as some of the questions I've had on podcasts. You have no idea. Um, but, um, okay, Reiki and Pelua. So uh, these are both energy technique treatments, which take um, you know up to an hour for a treatment for both of them. Reiki is a hands-on treatment. Yes. And the focus of Reiki is the physical body and the aura. And it what Reiki does, the, the Reiki treatment is directed by the Reiki practitioner as in the Reiki practitioner, depending on how they do it, the old school way of doing it is there's a set sequence of 15 hand positions that you do on the body. But a lot of people nowadays do Reiki a bit more intuitively than that, where they will sense where they need to place the hands. And I do that um, when I do Reiki. And the practitioner is responding to what, what they're getting from the client's body, but also from what the client has told them when they come in about what's going on and what they want and need. And what the practitioner puts their hand on the client's body and the practitioner is attuned in Reiki. And what that means is they can turn the Reiki on using their mind and their energy to do that. And what the Reiki does is it calls upon the energy in the client's physical body to move in the way that it needs to, to create balance. So that's Reiki. Um, Pelua is a hands-off treatment, so the practitioner doesn't touch the client. Um, the practitioner is directed by the Pelua as to how they're going to move. So the practitioner's will is not involved in giving a Pelua treatment. It's almost like you're a puppet, and the Pelua energy is literally pushing you around. The way you're going to put your hands, how you're going to physically move, are you going to stand still? Are you going to back away? Are you going to go closer? And you don't necessarily, as a practitioner, you don't necessarily know why it's getting you to do anything in particular or why it's getting you to stop doing that and do something else. So your ego has to completely let go 
of being an expert and knowing why it's directing you. You are completely a puppet, a servant of it. And um, the focus of Palawa is the consciousness of the client. So um, I'm talking about consciousness as the, the higher self, the lower self, the awareness, the conscious awareness, the unconscious awareness, all of that in together, I'm, I'm calling consciousness. Yeah. And what happens is the, the, the practitioner, again, is attuned and can open the door to Pelawa, and the Pelawa then engages with the consciousness of the client, and they contract together as to what it is the client needs. And the practitioner is not privy to that. The practitioner does not know the content of that. And the client may not consciously know the content of that. In fact, is the dialogue going on? It's like it's like a contracting at the beginning. It's almost like a handshake at the beginning, where the it's almost like the client's consciousness says to the Pelower energy, I think this is what I need. And Pelower goes, You got it. And then Pelower does a process for up to 60 minutes of catalyzing, facilitating that to help that client's consciousness to shift in the way it needs to shift. So I'm sitting here now trying to get a picture of this as so when you first came across this. Were you in that position where you're thinking, I don't understand this, but I don't really know what the, I've, I've got like the concept, but I don't get what actually happens. Were you, did you have that question when somebody said to you, I do Pelower, until the, you did it? The, the minute uh, Julie said Pelower and said it's a, con, a radical shift in consciousness, I instantly 100% knew I wanted to do it with no question. And I do you think... Uh, if I understood it or not, but that was that's me. I'm like that. If something really strikes me, I'm in, and if it doesn't okay, strike so me, not in. Do you think this is just your journey, isn't it? But you did Reiki first, and then you did Pelawa after. Do you? It was obviously a that was the evolutionary path for you, wasn't it? Um, yes. yes. And and then I, I, interestingly, with with Pelawa, um very interesting with Pelawa because quite a, quite a few people, I don't know what the proportions are, but it's one of the things that stands out with Pelawa is that a lot of people come to it in a similar way to me in the sense that they just hear the word and just mm. want to hear it. Right. In my last workshop, one of the people who came, she said she saw my post on Facebook about it and she just booked a place. That was it. She, she just it didn't even find out anything more about it. She just knew I just want to do it. And she showed up and she said, I don't know why I did that. It felt right. I don't know why I did it. You know, and I said, well, don't worry about it. Your higher self, your higher self brought you here. They wouldn't worry about it. She went, yeah, that feels absolutely right. You know, so, but then other people might hear about it and, and, and not even remember they even heard about it. Like completely no connection whatsoever. And then some people hear about it and wrangle and argue about it. There was someone else on the same workshop who I first told about it five years ago. And she went, yeah, no. Not for me. <laughs> and then suddenly, a few months ago, she contacted me and said, um, I want to come on your next pedal workshop. Mm. And I thought, no one understands what happened there, but it doesn't matter. When you're ready, girl. When you're, when you're ready, ready. When you're ready, you're ready. And when you're not, you're not. Exactly. When you're ready, girl. Beautiful. So, so I haven't on, asked you a question. So that, that's the difference between pedal and Reiki. Um, uh, a lot of people who come and do Pelawa ha have done Reiki before and a lot of people who come have never done anything before and a lot of people who come have never even had an energy treatment of any kind so it's an extraordinary mixture of people right. and it works so, just for everybody it doesn't matter are you spending 
most of your time doing workshops, Catherine, now, or are you still doing your one-to-one and, you know, work with clients? I I actually do um, a maximum of one workshop a month. And also once a month, I do a short dance session, like a two-hour session on a Saturday morning for people who just want to do that as a kind of maintenance thing or just for their enjoyment or who want to find out more about it. You know, so I like to have a range of things I'm doing that are accessible to different people. So it's like a weekend doing a workshop and a Saturday morning doing a group. And the rest of the time, I'm either doing mentoring or treatments or podcasting or my own having fun. You know, it's it's quite a mixture. Well, absolutely class. So does that bring us up to the kind of present where truth and transcendence is is living in your life or is oh, yeah, this so, yeah truth and transcendence started in the middle of 2021 and um the whole kind of um covid regime thing as i like to call it um was a, a very significant experience for me as well um and i'm going to be completely open about this you know i i said in my in my upbringing uh, we were encouraged not to automatically trust authority and institutions and my father even said to me look if there are 100 people 99 of them agree on one thing and the one person thinks something different it's more than likely that the one person is right now we were told that as a child so if i come forward now to the covid thing where everyone is suddenly terrified about this virus and we're all being told that wearing masks is a good idea and then they and that lockdowns are a good idea and it's going to fix it and that later on the vaccine is a good idea and also because i'd never had vaccines and never done i'd always looked after my own health you can imagine my attitude coming into that was fairly unusual my attitude was this is nonsense and also i'm not frightened because i've got a really stonking immune system um and everyone i love has as well you know so i was in a very different place from a lot of people um, and over the first year or so, I got I actually got quite angry about mm-hmm. what was happening because I thought it was very, very damaging. Yes. Because of my understanding of, of physical health, I also thought it was genuinely very, very bad for people's physical health, all this stuff that people were doing, you know, spraying mm-hmm. with antibacterial stuff. I mean, that stuff is toxic. You know, it, it, and so by the middle 2021, because I was also forbidden by law to see my clients. <laughs> um I was well, I had a, a, a term, I, mean, I, had, I had a full monk on. Do you know that expression? You were well. Yeah, yeah. I was well, yeah. Um, do you know that expression, a monk, having a monk on? Oh, 100%, yeah. I don't I know had, where, where it actually comes from, but yeah, you've, you've got a monk on, yeah. Or, um, what the, yeah, yeah. So I thought, so you've got the hum. I, had, I seriously had the hum, right? So what am I going to do? I thought, I've got to get my voice out. I can't be ranting at my friends. You know, I can't be getting an ulcer. <laughs> you know, um, I can't be walking the hills of Wales muttering like a Tourette's patient. I thought, I know, I'll do a podcast and just get my voice out, and that might help. Beautiful. And let's try and do a podcast that might be actually helpful. Because I was thinking, you know, we need really good leadership now. Because mm. a lot of people are flailing around. People who've been in fear for a long time were kind of damaged by the ongoing fear. I mean, we're not built to be in fear for an extended period. Fear is supposed to be something that triggers us to change what we're doing mm. and then move on. It's not supposed to be something that we're feeling for three years unmitigated. It's sure. just not good for us. So I thought, let's try and put something in that's going to help with 
for leaders. And I was like, well, what's my concept? What's it going to be called? And there's this guy called John Lee Dumas, who does a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire. Mm. I've heard the name. I know not John's name. I don't know his podcast. um, Entrepreneurs. I can't quite do his accent. Anyway, he did a whole uh, free podcast series on how to do a podcast. So I, I just ate that up. And on there, there's an exercise you do to come up with the name of your podcast, sort of intuitive exercise. And what popped out was truth and transcendence. I was like, what does that mean? And I thought, well, obviously, in order to transcend, we need to find and connect with our truth. And everyone I've ever worked with, the first thing they do is to get clear about the truth of the moment, what's true now. Mm. Because if you don't now, how can you even transcend? So that began in July 2021. And to begin with, I was too terrified to have guests. So I just did solo episodes. You? You terrified of having guests? I can't yeah, believe it. I've done a lot of learning. It was a totally new totally new vehicle for me. You know, I was apps, I was used to being in, I was used to dialogue, you know, yeah. together. I wasn't mm. used to the idea that me talking outwards, you know, and I, the, I, anyway, I did about 30 episodes solo. And then one day on a Monday, I woke up and went, I want to start with a guest. And then on the Tuesday, I know what the topic is. It's gender. And then on the Wednesday, it's got to be Tom. He's all about gender. Rang Tom. We recorded the next day. You know, it's like, so in four days, I went from no guests to starting guests. Mm. And that just ran on from there. Wow. No, I absolutely love the the title. I think it's absolutely, it just resonates totally with me. It's not the point, but... um knowing you Catherine the little bit that I do I think it sums your sums you up um and it's amazing and um for anybody who is listening um and we'll certainly put it in the show notes um you know I certainly haven't listened to all of Catherine's um episodes but I'm going to certainly listen to some of the early ones when um you did your solo ones I've listened to some of the guests and there's a couple of guests that we've had on leader manager coach as well um Mm -hmm. so yeah dive in and um because it's such a rich tapestry of, of, of people, um, you will not be disappointed. Um, Thank you. So we're up to the present. Um, it's been a great conversation up to now. Um, do you find that um, uh, people have a, do you have people come to you who are skeptical and then get masses of benefit, Catherine? Ah, yes. And actually, that that, that links to the other part of your question that I didn't answer before. Um, Usually, if someone approaches me, they're not sceptical by the time they approach me. Yeah. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have approached me. Sometimes they are a bit nervous um, and unsure of what they want or uh, will they be able to do it or how do they make sure they, you know, it's more common that people are a little bit nervous um, or that people aren't sure they deserve to give themselves whatever it is. Mm. So, but I'd like to try and answer the other thing you asked me earlier, where you said, mm. when towards me, why, what, what are they bringing with mm. them? What, mm. uh, and I would say in general, when people come towards me, it's, um, it's not usually um, primarily because of a problem. Um, it, it's, although there might be a problem going on. But that's usually not the primary reason. Usually the primary reason is because they've got this feeling that there's something that's waiting in the wings for them or just around the corner. It's a perfect description. You know, 
that, that just could be amazing, right? And sometimes they know what they'd like that to be. And sometimes they've just got this feeling that there's something, uh, but they're not sure what it is. And sometimes they've just got this hunger inside them, mm. you know, um, that's just going, I just want to grow, you know, I just want to grow, you yeah. know. Um, and yeah, really usually cool. there's, usually that's the most important reason they've come towards me. And to be fair, those are the sorts of people I tend to attract because people who aren't like that sometimes find me a bit annoying, you know, because, yeah. because I, I'm not going to focus on the drama, you know, it's, if someone really wants to have a real drama, you know, God bless them, but I'm not really going to join them. I had a really yeah. bizarre situation where somebody um, contacted me and um, wanted my help with something. But I had a kind of feel, I don't know, what's this person want? You know, turned out this person was having a real problem with their family. They felt like their family misunderstood them, uh, mm -hmm. didn't treat them respectfully, um, et cetera. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, let's have a Zoom conversation. It turned out what this person wanted me to do, because this person had decided that I had authority and a good delivery and a great voice yeah. and articulate nobody else. This person wanted me to go and visit their family and convince their family that they were wrong <laughs> about this person. It's great. This person was, you know, whatever they want them to think about this person. Okay. And I said to them, okay. I think we've uncovered one of the causes of your problems with you. <laughs> bit Freudian here going on. <laughs> bit of Freud here. <laughs> right now, you know. I th I think you've, you know, in this free Zoom call, I think you might have answered your own question as to why you've got these problems with your family, you know, because you're just trying to manipulate them and control them. It's and, almost and diametrically opposite your, isn't it? It's so diametrically, yeah. it, it, you know, it's beautiful. It's a great story and, and there's, there's lots of love going towards the person from here, yes, you know, because yes. I've been the biggest fool on the planet many times. So, you know, ego driven and all the rest of it and still am. Um, but yeah. Um, I will say, I just want to finish the story with this particular person. So I said, look, A, if I went and did that, it probably wouldn't give you what really, really wants. However, um, if I wanted a good earner for the rest of my life, I would say yes, because... <laughs> Best case, it'll work for a short time and then you'll have to send me back in to do it again. Yeah. So I'd have to go and do it, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis until everybody dies. Now, I don't think that would give you what you want. And also, I wouldn't feel ethical in doing that. So, no, I'm not going to do it. And the person was really surprised and shocked. Now, this particular person um, continued to be in touch with me and has actually come to some of my uh, work like that and is now about to do another piece of work with me. And during the process, this person has changed. This person has undergone a change. Now, I don't say it's because I said no, but I believe that saying no contributed to that in the sense yeah. that it interrupted a pattern because I, I stayed present and available to this person mm -hmm. as a person, Sorry. but with boundaries. And sometimes that's what all people need. Sometimes they don't actually need to do any actual formal work. Sometimes they just need somebody to go, uh, no, and I'm around if you want to be in touch. You know, mm. when you're ready to actually do some work, I'm here. Yeah, it's absolutely spot on. Um, hundred percent. It's a beautiful story uh, as well, um, and it's humorous. Uh, it's great. Um, I'd like to uh, just touch on. I know we're kind of running over. We're coming up to time, but um, I'd like 
to talk about authority and a little bit more and skepticism and and authority because I don't this is probably I'm probably being autobiographical it's just my own consciousness at the minute but all I kind of not all but there's so much Catherine at this moment in time that seems to be about control and I don't think I've ever been so skeptical of authority and you've talked about it with the COVID um of bureaucracy, of government, of organisations. I, I feel like we're subtly, sometimes not so subtly being pushed, you know, with data, with uh, giving people authority to do things with our lives. Um, and I probably know the answer to this, but talk to me about that a little bit. Um, it just reminds me of a hilarious email I got the other day from one of my favourite podcasters, Tom Woods. And he was talking about the fact that in today's culture, um, something that's frowned upon is doing your own research. Doing your own research. Oh, you must be a conspiracy theorist. And he pointed out that doing your own research is something that we used to call reading. And yeah. that it used to be something that, that you were encouraged to do. And due diligence, huh? Due diligence. And as I actually said to somebody early on in 2020, I said, look, um, I've always... I've always thought government, you know, a bit of a sort of unwieldy, messy admin department, you know, that I'm not very impressed with. But I've never before actually felt under attack by my own government. That's new. And I think what happened was um, governments, many governments around the world, kind of overstepped. Um, they went beyond what a lot of people find actually tolerable and acceptable. And I think a lot of people who, who tolerated it and accepted it at the time, a lot of those people now are actually saying, you know what, I don't really, I don't really think that's okay. And of course, at, at the beginning, the only people speaking out about it were sort of weird, hairy activists yeah. that that also had a kind of very difficult delivery, you know, sort of ranty delivery. That, yeah. that even if they might have been right, let's say, or have a fair point, they were difficult. Didn't hit the spot. Yeah. You know, and I've I've seen equivalent things before, where the first people to speak out are the ranty weirdos. But then, after as time goes on, gradually the people who are speaking out are becoming more and more and more um, articulate, authoritative, well-informed people. Mm -hmm. So there are now members of parliament in various countries saying, actually, that was not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas in 2020, that would have been. There were one or two, but they were utterly shouted down. Do you think it's happened? So there's, there's almost a, a, a massive step change in the last two years of, of what you're talking about. Yes, I mean you can you can see a continuum if you look back, but you know sometimes yeah. with, a, with a continuum, there's a, a critical moment where it suddenly yes, and it's like an incremental limp. Yeah, leap. it's incremental, but it looks like a step change. Yes, yeah. So, and I know that you look into history yourself, so you you will have seen that. So. So there's that. And I think with, with authority, um, I've done a lot of work. And in the humanistic psychology world, we do a lot of work around power. And we talk about, I think, called power with and power over. And power over is where you're well, having power over somebody else. It's a dominating thing. Mm. And power with is where you are sharing power and you're encouraging the other person to actually grow their personal power. Yeah. And then there's personal power and then there's given power status power 
And um, to me, um, there's a thing called natural authority, which I think is always a contribution where someone has a natural authority, which comes from their experience, their heart, their spirit, their soul, their positive intent, their path, their mission, etc. That's a natural authority. And that's something I've always sought to develop in myself and that I've always sought to help other people develop. But if it's a, an imposed authority, that can often happen where the person doesn't have the inner personal strength and authority. So then the outward authority becomes dominating. It's, it's not mm. enhancing. Mm. Uh, and there was something else I wanted to say that I've just completely lost. Um, yes, uh, on, my, on my new website I'm building at the moment, um, there's a, a, a quote from, I've got his name now, which is, the only true hierarchy is that of consciousness. The only true hierarchy is that of consciousness. Yeah. And when our consciousness is elevated, we are at the top of our game and we are then the elite, in my view. And I bought we are, what? We are we are then the elite, you know, if you're yes. gonna have yes. the elite of consciousness. Although consciousness is not elitist, so there's a contradiction right there. But well, yeah, we get it. And I hear people on podcasts talking about the wealthy people, the government people, and calling them the elite. And I'm saying, no, those are not the elite. They have power, but they're not the elite. Because to me, the elite are the people with the highest merit. And that's not necessarily the same group of people. There's Absolutely. probably some people in those groups. There's going to be some wonderful people. You know, some okay. people really rate Elon Musk, for example. Some people think he's a wonderful person. I don't know enough about him to have an opinion. But, you know, there are people who are very influential and powerful and wealthy who are extraordinary souls and wonderful mm. and there are others who are not you know mm. so i'm much more interested in the hierarchy of consciousness uh, and, and the authority that comes with that i think that's a beautiful place to to wind up this this conversation i think it's perfect um and so thank you for that this has been amazing for me i've loved it I, I hope all the listeners have got something out of it and so i'm going to put your yes you now website details on the uh show notes um right. and i know that you're on linkedin Catherine. yes i am yeah um so if people want to find out more about all your work whether that's reiki or pelawa or mentoring is that something that uh, they can find out from your resources i'm actually in the process of building a new uh, website and everything will be on that new website and that's why i'm doing it because at the moment it's in a variety of places so for now yes you now dot today is the place to go or linkedin or the podcast so on the show notes of the podcast are all the links when i finish the new website all of the other places will divert themselves naturally and seamlessly, one hopes, to the new website. So Perfect. wherever you begin, you will end up in the right place. You're just transcending, aren't you? That's what you're doing. You're just on the process of, yeah, of course. <laughs> Thank you. We I never love get there. Way. We never get there, do we? We never <laughs> that, get there. Thank God for that. <laughs> thank the Lord for that. Well, you know what? I'm going to wrap it up. It's been amazing. And um, Catherine, thank you. From the bottom of my heart for your time and your openness and your uh, beautiful story um which really i i hope gives people the confidence to think yes this avenue can do something for me 
or maybe not now, but I know somebody who who it might. So um, yeah, I hope everybody can fill the boots. But thank you. Thank you so much.